Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm fine. Feeling a lot better, and I hope you are, after our bouts of cold. Getting there. Yes, definitely getting there. Still not 100% there. Yeah, still lingering. lingering. Yeah. Mm. But, um, well, we've both had our flea jabs as well, haven't we? We have. Well, we've both got sore today, arms. So we've got sore <laughs> arms. It. I haven't got time to have the flea. Or anything else. You can come to that. Or anything else, yeah. <laughs> in these strange times that we live in, where mm. um, things are on the rise here in the UK. Yeah, I'm just very lucky that I don't really leave the house. So <laughs> it's fine. I'll just I'll just carry on staying at home, working. Carry on shielding, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not really shielding. I just am quite antisocial. So, probably a good plan. Yeah, <laughs> stay safe. I just don't have so. time. I just don't have time. <laughs> well, no, not with everything you've got on at the moment. <laughs> Any news in the world of true crime this week, Phoebe? Well, there was some pretty big news yesterday, which, to be honest, I'm pretty furious about. So, where they've been looking for Brian Laundry in the Carlton Reserve in Florida, they found a body next to a backpack and some other belongings that belong to Brian Laundry. <laughs> mm. So if it's him, I am going to be so angry. Like when I read this, I thought I was genuinely really angry about it just because if it is him, it's just not fair. Like her, Gabby Petito's family are just not going to know what's happened unless he's left any information behind or unless his family did know what happened and um, they will finally tell the police what happened. But mm. Their, their behaviour's been a bit weird. So weird. So the, the Carlton Reserve's been shut and it reopened yesterday and his parents went and within an hour of them being there... They found the body. They found it. The parents found it. The parents found it, which is well, so weird. Yeah, they, the, I, I, I read a report about it. found a bag, didn't they? Yeah. found like a bag and they were like, oh, this is his bag. And then nearby, somebody, I think somebody else found the body. But the fact that they've had like police and dogs and search teams and divers and everything out there for the last month and then his parents go in and then in less than an hour they found this bag that I think that's bizarre or just a really weird coincidence and there's a lot of weird coincidences with his parents kind of lining up with this case um but they did say that that where they did find the body um that it had been underwater yeah, for yeah. a long time and now that because it's been a lot of rainfall but now it's kind of drained away now expose things yeah I read a um, theory a few weeks ago that said like that kind of camping trip that they all went on in September into the reserve. They reckon that might have been like a goodbye trip, basically. So they kind of went and facilitated him being able to go and they said goodbye to him because he told them what he was going to do. Um, then I read something else yesterday, which is ridiculous, saying that his parents must have just planted another cadaver there <laughs> and uh, saying, oh, it's him to throw people off the case or that he's killed somebody else and it's another body so we'll find out when they've finished their uh, research into yeah. what they found I mean I think that the way that they've handled it with the kind of press conference and the things that they've been saying about around it point to that they think it's probably him so but they said partial remains so maybe he's been like eaten a bit by some or just decomposed and if he's been underwater yeah, I mean, it's been a, a, bit a and... month in Florida mm. swamp humid He'll, uh, yeah, it's probably not uh, probably not a lot of him left, to be honest. So. But mm. sh- if they knew that he was going to do that, surely it would be better to have him alive 
Yeah. I can't believe that they would have allowed him to do it. They would have, yeah, exactly. They would have, very odd. Unless they thought he was genuinely camping out there, lying low, and now he has accidentally died. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is that as well. But I I don't suppose they'll ever speak, will they? Because, well, I don't know. The the police can't arrest them, can they? I I have no idea. Unless they can prove that they were complicit. All very sad. All very tragic. carry on watching it. It is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In other American true crime news, I noticed that a male nurse in Texas has been found guilty of killing four heart patients in hospital. He oh attempted to kill seven uh, and succeeded in killing four. While they were in recovery, all of them after quite intensive heart operations, all of them were doing well, and then they suddenly died. Oh, my God. They couldn't figure out what had killed them until they did CT scans on the bodies and they found pockets of air in their brains. Oh, my God. And apparently what he'd done is injected air into their arterial lines that they got in. Jeez. And so, yeah, basically introduced an an embolism. Uh, Well, um, so the prosecution is saying that he did this for... The sheer thrill of killing, and we've heard okay. that before, haven't we? With the yeah, and because of that, they are the, the prosecution are pushing for him to be sentenced to death. Wow, that's uh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> he's obviously quite a danger to society if he's just he, going around is, injecting yeah. uh, well air into people. I guess the other big news this week is about the murder of Conservative MP David Amos. Yeah. Yeah, and today they have charged Ali Habi Ali, 25-year-old man from North London, for his murder. He's a British man whose father is a former advisor to Somalia's Prime Minister. There you go. So apparently he'd been plotting to kill an MP for a couple of years. Oh, wow, okay. We were talking about what sentence he might get, and um, we were saying that... A conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about whole life sentences and yeah. isn't killing politicians or people like that isn't that a reason to get a whole life sentence it, it could well be I, I don't think it's just the murder itself it, it's a it's a threat to our democracy our government our fabric of life here in the uk yeah just i guess there has to be a um by-election now aren't there in yes with uh sir david amos and recently james Brokenshire as well, who sadly passed away of lung cancer at the age of 53. I expect there will be a couple of by-elections coming up soon. Mm, Yes. So tonight, I am going to talk to you about vampires. Ooh, lovely. (laughs) So um, not witches, like I told you I was going to talk to you about. I changed my mind. (laughs) I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of vampires and where they came from and where the whole kind of law of vampires came from and then talk about a specific murder that was quite vampire inspired Ooh, spooky finishing off our halloween theme uh, yeah so, trip down halloween lane yeah normal murder service will resume in November <laughs> <laughs> before we get into our christmas uh, christmas theme A vampire is a creature from folklore that exists or subsists because it's not alive um, by feeding on the vital essence, which is generally in the form of blood of the living. 
So in European folklore, vampires are the undead creatures that often visited loved ones and caused mischief or deaths in neighbourhoods they inhabited whilst they were alive. Vampires were usually reported as being quite bloated in appearance and ruddy, purplish or dark in colour. And these characteristics are often attributed to the recent drinking of blood. And that's very different to that kind of modern view of vampires of being this kind of like thin, gaunt, pale vampire with the cloak and all of that before that and pointy teeth before that. There were very much these kind of bloated, red, ruddy beings. And blood was often seen seeping from their mouth and their nose when one was seen and a left eye was always left open. And uh, it would be clad in kind of the linen shroud that it was buried in. So vampires would be in a shroud, not a cloak. And their teeth, hair and nails would have grown somewhat. Um, but fangs weren't really a, a, a feature in this yeah. kind of original vampire. So tales of supernatural beings that consume on blood or flesh have been found in nearly every culture around the world for millenniums. Okay. <laughs> Cultures such as the Mesopotamians, the Hebrews, ancient Greeks, the Romans, they all had tales of demons and spirits, which were kind of considered the precursor to the modern vampire. And despite the occurrence of vampires in these civilizations, the folklore for kind of what we now know as the vampire really came from 18th century Southeast Europe when verbal traditions of lots of ethnic groups of this region were finally kind of recorded and published. In most cases, vampires are a revenant of evil beings. Um, They're suicide victims. They're witches. But they can also be created by a malevolent spirit possessing a corpse or by being bitten by a vampire. So they can kind of, they're like contagious. Okay. And belief in this kind of became so pervasive that in some areas in Europe, it caused this like mass hysteria and even public executions and people believing to be vampires and desecration of graves and things like that so one of the kind of more common ideas for where the idea of vampire came from is that it was kind of pre-industrial societies attempting to explain decomposition because people would sometimes suspect that their loved ones were vampires um if they didn't look like they thought they should do if it had been disinterred so obviously we know that rates of decomposition vary very much depending on the temperature and the soil and the time of year. And sometimes they, obviously, if they were kind of moving bodies around or disinterring people or exhuming people and they hadn't decomposed as they would have expected them to, they would think, oh, they've not decomposed, so they're still alive or they are the undead. And obviously, we also know that corpses swell as gases Mm -hmm. from decomposition accumulate. And that kind of increased pressure in the body forces blood to come out of the nose and the mouth. And this can cause the body to look kind of plump and ruddy. So it's this idea that, you know, they were kind of digging up people and they all of a sudden, even if they'd been really skinny and pale in life, then they're all kind of like, plump and very red-faced and look very healthy almost in death so the idea that they didn't look like they were dead they looked more healthy than they'd ever done in their life (laughs) and the fact that they were kind of (laughs) oozing blood from their nose and their mouth looked like they'd been drinking blood 
Ooh, lovely. And then after you die, the skin and your gums lose kind of fluids because obviously your fluids just drain away. And that means that your skin um, contracts, your gums contract, which expose the roots of your hair, your nails and your teeth. So even teeth are kind of concealed in the jaw. So this can look like your hair and your nails and your teeth have grown. That's Ah, like an urban legend, isn't it? That your kind of your nails carry on growing after that you die. They don't. It's just that your skin recedes. So it looks like they're longer. Right, right. At a certain stage, the nails fall off and the skin peels away and that kind of dermis and nail bed underneath coming through was interpreted as like new skin and new nails. So it looked like these people who were dead were looking healthier than ever looked before. Their hair was longer, their teeth were stronger, they had new nails coming through. So it looked like they were undead, basically. Ooh, spooky. Is is this any particular length of time after they originally <laughs> died? I mean, oh. it has to be relatively soon, wouldn't it? Because that's a relatively early phase of decomposition, isn't it, for bodies to yeah. look like that? So they um, wouldn't have been uh, have they wouldn't have been buried for very long before they were. No, and I wonder if it was maybe, yeah some people who maybe like been put to rest somewhere and then kind of moved to be buried, especially in other parts of Europe where they maybe had different kind of funeral rituals and things like that. If they'd kind of been left somewhere and then moved and they noticed this. The other kind of common things that people were being buried too soon and kind of premature burial that, and the idea that um, around this sort of time, kind of vampire legends were being influenced by this idea that people were being buried alive because of the lack of medical knowledge, basically. Right. People thought they were so, dead and they weren't. Yeah. But mm. in actual fact, there are very, very, very few cases of that actually happening. Okay. Um, and it was really more kind of like wishful thinking. <laughs> but so in some cases, people were saying that they could hear sounds coming from a coffin, which was actually probably more likely to be gases being released or being kind of pushed yeah. through the mouth, which sounds like kind of breathing, whistling, yeah. breathing, things like that, which I don't know how you'd hear from under the ground. <laughs> no. And then there was this kind of urban legend, I think more than anything, of kind of coffins being dug up and them having like fingernail marks on the inside and evidence of people trying to escape. And I think obviously in other cases, if if this had happened, then people were kind of, if they'd banged their head and they'd have blood kind of in their nose and their mouth, they're so looking like they'd been feeding. But actually... The problem with this theory is that actually very, very few people su- survived being, um, you know, buried buried alive because they were suffocated within um, a very short period of time. Kind of, yeah, and yeah. following on from last week, another more likely cause of this is actually kind of grave robbers. So people going in, stealing things from the body, putting it back together, then it looking, you know, dishevelled or like things had been scratched or things like that but actually it was kind of grave robbers going in more kind of folklore about vampirism is associated with clusters of deaths from unidentifiable or mysterious illnesses usually within the same family or a small community and the epidemic illusion is obvious and there's a classical case of peter blagojevich and arnold paole and a lady in america called mercy brown uh, who was in new england where 
basically it's tuberculosis and they all kind of suffer from tuberculosis but they think that it's vampirism passing around <laughs> or the mnemonic form of the bubonic plague which was kind of caused the lung tissue to break down which would cause blood to appear at the lips so they think oh my goodness there must be vampires but really it's just tb but all this kind of fueled this folklore that had existed so in the 18th century, there was a frenzy of vampire sightings in Eastern Europe. Frequently, they would kind of dig up bodies, identify people that they thought were vampires, put stakes through them. And okay. we'll kind of come back to that, kind of getting rid of vampires. But they would, you know, there'd be all this kind of desecration of graves going on because they were convinced that there were vampires like running around the community um and even government officials <laughs> engaged in the hunting and staking of vampires um real witch hunts <laughs> yeah vampire hunts despite it being the kind of age of enlightenment the belief in vampires increased dramatically resulting in this mass hysteria um, the panic began with an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in eastern Prussia in 1721. And that kind of following on from those kind of concentrated cases of viral illnesses where they thought it must be vampires when actually it was just illnesses, illnesses. kind of passing around <laughs> that looked like this case of a vampire. So this kind of hysteria really brought vampires to the forefront of people's minds across Europe. And it was then that we really started to see that kind of writing of vampire novels. So we see Byron writing that first vampire novel, that holiday that he was on with Mary Shelley when she wrote Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And another novel off the back of that written by his doctor, John Polidori. And then probably the most famous one following not that long afterwards, um, the novel of Dracula by... Bram Stoker, mm-hmm. which is obviously set in Whitby and yeah. influenced very much so by Vlad the Impaler, who was Vlad, Vlad of Dracul, which I think will probably be another podcast for another day. Okay. <laughs> so they would identify vampires by kind of doing all sorts of rituals so if they thought that there were vampires around they would go to the graveyard or go to where the grave was Um, and one ritual involved leading a virgin boy through a graveyard or church grounds on a virgin stallion and then the horse would supposedly bulk at the grave where the vampire was then they would dig up the body and destroy it (laughs) generally it had to be a black horse but in albania it had to be a white horse um, and any holes that were in the earth over a grave were taken as there was a sign of a vampire there as well. Wow. So when they dug it up, the corpses that were thought to be vampires were generally described as having a healthier appearance than expected. They were plump and showing little or no signs of, com- of decomposition. In some cases, when suspected graves were opened, villagers even described the corpse as having fresh blood from a victim all over its face, mm. um, which can be that kind of blood that's expelled essentially after you die but they thought Evident- it was from them having gone round the streets killing yeah, people killing people and then mm. going back to their Go graves, to their graves. <laughs> um, the blood all ev- over their face nice yeah <laughs> and then evidence that a vampire was active in a locality included death of cattle sheep relatives or neighbors and vampires could make their presence felt by engaging in kind of like poltergeist activity. So hurling stones on roofs, moving objects, pressing on people in their sleep. But generally, I think they would kind of 
feast on the blood of animals that they would find around. Oh, okay. Not just other humans. Not just other humans, no. Um, They were just there to kind of cause chaos. (laughs) So to protect themselves against vampires, people would take part in apotropaic magic which is the magic that wards off evil and there are kind of specific items that are common in vampire folklore uh, one of those is garlic obviously oh yeah <laughs> is said to be an apotropaic type of magic for warding away evil a branch of wild rose and hawthorn are said to harm vampires and in europe sprinkling mustard seeds on the roof of a house were said to keep them away Other apotropaics included sacred items, for example, a crucifix, a rosary, holy water. Um, And we kind of, you have that image, don't you, of like flicking holy water on vampires and them like... And they all melt, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although not traditionally regarded as an apotropaic, um, mirrors have been used to ward off vampires and placed facing outwards on a door. And in some cultures, vampires don't have a reflection and sometimes don't cast a shadow because they don't Mm -hmm. have a soul. So this wasn't a universal thing, but it was used by Bram Stoker in Dracula and has been used kind of in films and TV programmes ever yeah. since to kind of think it's about It's an image vampires. that we're all familiar with, I should imagine. Yes. Yeah. And some traditions also hold that a vampire can't enter a house unless they've been invited in by the owner. So after that first invitation, they can come and go as they please, but they have to be invited in first. And there's that also really common thing now about vampires kind of being um, susceptible to sunlight. But actually, in folklore, whilst they were thought to be more active at night, they were not generally considered vulnerable to sunlight. So they could be out during the day. So that's another thing that's kind of morphed as time has gone on. So methods of destroying vampires varied, with um, staking was the most commonly cited um, method. Ash was the preferred wood in Russia. Um, or hawthorn in Serbia, and aspen was used quite a lot because it was believed that Christ's cross was made from aspen. Okay. Um, and they used to put aspen branches on the graves of vampires to kind of stop them from coming up at night if they thought there was a vampire there. Potential vampires were most often staked through the heart, though um, it was through the mouth in Russia and northern Germany. <laughs> Piercing the skin of the chest was a way of deflating the bloated vampire. So that's similar to that kind of practice of an anti-vampire burial. So burying sharp objects such as sickles with the corpse so that they can penetrate the skin if the body bloats to stop it from turning into the revenant. So this was a practice that they put in place. In some places, they also started decapitating bodies and then the head was kind of buried between the feet or behind the bum so that it was away from the body, so that if it came back to life, it couldn't find its own head and it couldn't go and feast on people in the night. Mm-hmm. Um, this was seen as a way of hastening the departure of the soul, which in some cultures was said to linger in the corpse. So if there was any risk of them turning into a vampire, either from what had happened to them or if they were just going to turn into a vampire, um, depending on where in the world they were, <laughs> they couldn't turn into a vampire if they'd had their head removed. So, so people actually did this. They actually buried people with their heads cut off and they uh, all those other things based on a myth. Yeah, based on this kind of folklore, um, especially, you know, in this kind of 18th century, 19th century sort of time in Europe. They, okay. uh, 
they were so scared by the fact that people were going to rise um, from the grave vampires i mean you sound surprised but um the other topic i was going to cover tonight was around kind of witch trials and they killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people because they thought there might be witches so i'm not so surprised that they kind of cut off heads to stop them from coming back but but also you know with that kind of um dissection thing we've been talking about the last couple of weeks that was something that they did for criminals to stop them from coming back on judgment day so there's a lot of uh, I mean not not saying that that's a myth but um there's a lot of folklore and well that took over people's uh, ways of thinking absolutely Um, another thing that they would do is pour boiling water over the grave or completely incinerate the body so that they couldn't possibly be, you know, come back to life. And obviously now we cremate more people than we bury, don't we? So vampires probably aren't such an issue anymore. But yeah, that's um, that's, that's just stopping coming back as vampires, basically, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think we've cracked it. That's the reason that uh, we 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 cremate now. In some other regions in Germany, a lemon was put in the mouth of some suspected vampires to stop them from coming back as a vampire. A lemon. A lemon. So. It was a real, it was a real threat. It was something that people were really scared about. Scared people of, were yeah. genuinely worried, especially after this kind of hysteria where they thought all these vampires were existing when really it was just kind of diseases. They thought that these undead were coming and bringing plagues to their farms and their houses and their families and causing all these issues. So obviously today, vampires are looked at very differently. <laughs> They're seen as that kind of suave charismatic villain there are so many vampire stories and novels and things that have been changed about them the thing that keeps coming to my head is that simpsons episode when mr burns is a vampire (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but obviously there's twilight there's yeah is it blade i think there's so many kind of vampire buffy Buffy, the the vampire slayer there's so many vampire things now it's just kind of become something that we know isn't real <laughs> we know that it's a yeah it's a escapism major thing. now isn't it but, absolutely uh... but for a real chunk of time it was a real concern to a lot of people across okay. the world really i think it's so interesting when so many different cultures have got stories of a, a demon essentially that replicates itself around the world and in south america they still have the chupacabra who they uh, still very much thinks is real and that is a kind of vampiric creature the only other thing about vampires is the idea of the vampire bat now i always thought that they were kind of always linked together but apparently it's really been quite modern that vampire bats have been associated with vampires they were integrated into vampire folklore after they were discovered in the 16th century so still a relatively long time ago but Mm, not as long as that kind of idea of vampires has been around okay Um, obviously there's no vampire bats in europe (laughs) but bats and owls have long been associated with the supernatural and omens mostly because of their nocturnal habits because they're around at night aren't they yeah in the kind of literary dracula he transforms into a bat several times in the novel of dracula and vampire bats themselves are mentioned twice and it was kind of from then on that the, the, they became really linked together so it was really bram stoker who 
created this kind of pale count in a cloak who was out at night who turned into a bat that we all kind of yeah. know and think yeah. of today. Was it Bram Stoker that actually came up with the name of Dracula? Yeah, it was. So he took that from, he was inspired by Vlad the Impaler, who was called Vlad L. Dracul or something like that. Okay, so, so that's what he came to. So before Dracula. that, it was just referred to as vampires. vampires. Yeah. But now that it's, yeah, Dracula and vampire are kind of interchangeable, aren't they, with each other? And, and a lot of this um, folklore and, and suspicion of bodies coming back was all based on not understanding the science of what happens to bodies yeah basically um and this fear that people would the vampires would come and feast on blood and the idea that you know kind of feasting on blood or that life essence of another person would help them live longer or become immortal so a number of murderers have performed seemingly vampiric rituals on their victims right serial killers peter Curtin, who we probably won't cover because he does a lot with children and richard chase who is american so again it's off our books out, both out, of, called, our zone. Yeah. out of our zone and <laughs> um, they were both called vampires in the tabloids after they were discovered drinking the blood of the people they murdered and in 1932, an unsolved murder case in Stockholm was n- named the Vampire Murder because of the circumstances of the death. And the late 16th century Hungarian countess and mass murderess Elizabeth Bathory became particularly famous in later centuries because she would bathe in her victim's blood in order to retain her beauty and her youth. And she's a really interesting character that I've kind of got on my list to cover at another time as well. Mm, that'd be interesting one. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about one murder that involves vampires from the okay. UK, and Ooh. it's set in Wales. So I'm going to apologise now if I get any um, pronunciations right because my Welsh <laughs> isn't great. <laughs> so Matthew Hardman was born in Amluch on the north coast of Anglesey in 1985. In 1998, when he was 13. He moved to Lanfairpool with his mother, Julia, who was a nurse, and her partner, Alan, who was a fireman. The same year, his dad, who was separated from his mum, died of a massive asthma attack, which caused huge distress to Matthew. However, he tried to go on with his life as normal, and he started doing a paper round around the village. At the age of 16, he left school to go and study art and design at college, And people said that he was um, a quiet lad who kept himself to himself. He wasn't very sociable and he stayed in most of the time. However, he had a pretty dark obsession that was starting to fascinate him more and more. Fast forward a few years and on the 25th of November 2001, 90-year-old Mabel Lation was found dead at her home in Landfairpool. The police officers who discovered her had gone to investigate her bungalow because um, a Meals on Wheels volunteer had been in touch with them to say that she couldn't deliver her food. She right. was answer at the door when she went round. Yeah, Got in touch with the police. When she went round to the house, she also noticed there was a broken window. So she called the police to say, I can't get this lady her food, nor there's a broken window. And when the police arrived at the bungalow, they discovered a pretty horrifying scene. So Mabel was slumped in an armchair in front of the television. Her body was covered in blood and she'd been stabbed 22 times. There was also a nine inch wound where her heart should have been. 
The police found the heart wrapped inside a newspaper at her feet. It was contained inside a saucepan, which in turn had been placed on a silver platter. And they found lip marks around the outside of the saucepan, suggesting that the killer had been drinking her blood. Nice. There were two pokers and a pair of candles laid across the floor, and the pokers had been positioned so that it resembled a cross. And the scene of the crime looked very much like the aftermath of a ritual. Yep. The gashes on Mabel's neck, wrists and legs indicated that the killer had been trying to extract as much blood as possible from her. Obviously, this was an incredibly gruesome attack in this little Welsh village. <laughs> um, like it, yeah. And the police were very keen to find who did it. So they started going house to house, questioning those in the village about Mabel's death. They didn't find anything out. Those who came forward for DNA testing, nobody matched up with the DNA found on the saucepan. And they couldn't really work out where to go next. However, several days into the investigation, the police started to focus on a 17-year-old art student called Matthew Hardman, who had recently been involved in a bizarre incident. So a couple of months before Mabel's murder, um, an exchange student from Germany had visited Matthew in Landfairpool. And during this time, Matthew had begged the exchange student to bite him, believing that this would turn him into a vampire. After the police were called, Matthew had also asked one of the officers to bite him as well. Obviously, they all did When they started to think about this, they also realised that Matthew lives only a couple of minutes away from Mabel and that he was familiar with the route because it was where he had done his paper round and Uh, he'd actually delivered a paper to Mabel's house every day. Matthew had an alibi for the night of the murder. However, it was very quickly proven to be false. So the Ah. police knew that they were onto something. When they searched his house, it confirmed their suspicions. Mm -hmm. Inside, they found the knife that Matthew used to kill Mabel in the pocket of one of his coats. He hadn't even taken the blood off the blade. Wow. Um, They came across a pair of trainers, which matched a footprint on the patio outside Mabel's broken window. And a quick examination of Matthew's internet history revealed his obsession with vampires. He had spent countless hours poring over websites about vampires, rituals and the dark arts. And inside Matthew's bedroom, there was also a number of vampire related books and magazines. So over the, in the months running up to Mabel's murder, he had convinced himself that drinking the blood of the elderly could make him immortal. And this twisted obsession had transformed him into a murderer. Wow. When he was arrested in January 2002, those who spoke with him noticed his very unusual behaviour. Mm-hmm, <laughs> they said mm-hmm. that he freely admitted to his obsession with vampirism, but despite all the evidence, he refused to admit that he'd killed Mabel. A psychiatric nurse spoke with him, said that he was confident and polite, and he was surprisingly calm about the whole affair, which was obviously quite astonishing, given the fact that it was quite a gruesome murder. Very gruesome. Wow. Matthew continued to deny that he'd killed Mabel during his two-week trial the following summer, but obviously there was simply too much evidence against him to say otherwise. And the judge said that his dark obsession was behind the killing and the attraction of immortality had been irresistible for him he then received a life sentence for his depraved crime but this was about 12 years i think at the time when he was oh, sentenced. wow okay so he's probably out of prison now 2002 <laughs> 2014 yeah 
Yeah, it seemed very lenient that considering that. Um, I guess he was he wasn't technically an adult when he committed the crime, was uh, he? No, seventeen. Pretty 17, depraved sort of so. thing, though, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Cutting someone's heart um, out—it can't be easy. No, not at all. <laughs> and the sheer amount of injuries that she sustained. Yeah. That of him just trying to kind of drink her blood, and I read somewhere else that. He'd said to this German exchange student that it was the perfect place to be a vampire because of the amount of elderly people that lives in the town. So it seemed like he was just planning to work his way around all of these elderly people and build on his immortality. Oof. Yeah. Again, based on um, dodgy science or not understanding, just a fixation. Some myths and folklore. Yeah. Wow. So that is a very brief rundown on the history of vampires and where they came from, how to protect yourself from a vampire, and obviously just a snippet of one murder that was kind of inspired, inspired by this idea yeah. of drinking somebody's blood to make you immortal. Yeah. So, well, well thank you very much, Phoebe. I know a lot more about the history of vampires than I did an hour ago. <laughs> so thank there you, you for that. Also, there's so much information out there. Like most things, it's kind of a jumping off point to start reading yeah. more, but I thought it was pretty fascinating to kind of think where this idea came from and how it's still so much part of our culture today, really, isn't it? Like the amount of films and TV programmes. Yeah. And... That, that, that's just entertainment now, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it still builds up quite a lot of you know everybody knows what a vampire is that's true uh, especially this yeah. sort of time of year there's vampire stuff everywhere and well yeah yeah vampire costumes and things like that so everyone knows what a ghost out. is but has anyone ever actually seen one well that could be a, a conversation for another day <laughs> i guess it's the same with all those kind of halloweeny charactery things like zombies which are like the undead aren't they which are essentially decomposing people <laughs> when you think about zombie costumes and you know witches that comes from folklore but halloween itself is very much a kind of pagan festival based in folklore and that kind of yeah the evil spirits thing is more of a modern yeah. thing for day, day of the dead type thing um... that's a little bit later isn't it that's well yeah. it's because it's it's the day before all saints day so it's it is, that yeah. kind of idea of when that kind of bridge between the living and the dead is the closest all so... hallows eve isn't it halloween mm. yeah well have you got any uh pictures of real vampires or uh vampire related <laughs> stuff <laughs> i would definitely find some photos about vampire related stuff yeah. to put on our social media pages just some pictures of peter cushing yeah and uh, robert pattinson as uh, <laughs> what edward Cullen. oh okay <laughs> some real vampire yeah real folklore related stuff would be interested it's interesting yes. yeah and there's a lot of it actually um yeah i'm sure there is a real way so I will put some photos on our Instagram, which you can find at Dad and Daughter Do Death. You can find us on Facebook. Dad and Daughter Do Death. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at Dad and Daughter Do Death at gmail.com. 
or you can just message us on Facebook or Instagram. Yep. And if you've enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, please rate us, like us, follow us, subscribe, tell your family, tell your friends. And don't forget, we've still got a limited amount of merchandise that we can still send out to you if you would like some. That's been great. So uh, suitably spooky for Halloween. Yes. Thank you very much indeed for that yep. story, Phoebe. You're very welcome. And I look forward to telling you stories of more true crime and death next week, Phoebe. I look forward to it. So join us then when once again, dad and daughter do death. Happy, Happy Halloween! Halloween.